0: So what did everyone get in the Guardian's populism quiz? I definitely got that. Uh, I didn't really want to get him because he's a ponytail. I don't trust people with ponytails. Pablo Iglesias.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say I got the same.
2: I man. got Iglesias too.
3: I didn't do it, but I obviously wouldn't have got Iglesias.
4: <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> um, I, I didn't do it either, actually. I, I, um, I probably would have got Iglesias because presumably that was putting all the non-ridiculous answers in.
0: Well, no, there was one question, which I think if you answered the correct way on this, you would have got AMLO, who would have much rather got than Iglesias, which is like, uh, you know, it's obviously one of those questions where you have strongly agree and strongly disagree. And I think if it says, do you like left wing people and say strongly
2: uh, <laughs> disagree, uh, you might have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but I mean, look, any good Marxist should answer that they dislike leftists. I mean, let's be honest. Otherwise, what's the point? That's support?
1: absolutely yes. true. I think that, that's the first criteria nowadays to see whether anyone's actually a decent Marxist is whether you get along with the existing left. And if you do, exactly. then there's clearly a very, very big, <laughs> a very, very big problem. I'm
4: America. sorry, some but of my there. best friends are
1: leftists. So.
2: <laughs> 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 it's Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Well, for the foreseeable future more populism if the era of post-politics after the cold war was characterized by consensus politics and technocracy our times now what we here call the end of the end of history are dominated by populist upsurges is this something to be welcomed i mean it could be a sort of herald of repoliticization, but it might also be as the anti-populists have it a bunch of emotional manichaean rejectionistic, or opportunistic, and liberal politics. So this is our last episode of 2018, and we're discussing these questions with Anton Jaeger, a doctoral student at Cambridge, and one of the sharpest new scholars of populism out there. We'll also be referencing a recent book, which has been very widely discussed already, called For Left Populism, by Belgian political theorist Chantal Mouffe, which aims to give a theoretical framework to left populism a political strategy that she sees embodied in a range of new leftist projects across Europe, many of which we've already discussed on this podcast over the course of this year. Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's La France Insoumise, Syriza, Podemos, Die Linke in Germany, and the Bloco de Esquerda in Portugal. So is there any future to left populism or is it another dead end? All this right now. Welcome everyone to Alpha Bunga Bunga. We've got The full complement of regular Alpha Bunga Bunga co-hosts and co-producers. And we are very happy to welcome Anton Jaeger, who you heard about in the introduction with us to discuss populism, an episode which we've been meaning to do for a very long time. So this is the last Alpha Bunga Bunga of the year. Uh, We've done it stuff about Asia, Africa, Europe, and North and South America. Uh, I've done stuff about big ideas, small ideas, even some dumb ideas, maybe. Uh, So we'd first of all like to start off by thanking all our very smart guests who've hopefully made us smarter over the course of the year and maybe made our very smart listeners even smarter. And thank you for choosing Alpha Bunga Bunga as your podcast so that we might carry on this conversation about the crises of our time. And uh, there's no such greater one than the question of populism. Um, one author we're going to discuss today even defines our times as the populist moment. So we need to maybe start off by dealing with the big issue, which is one of the leading scholars of populism, somehow, Cas Uh What's the big deal with Cas And we're going to go to Anton for this.
1: Um, yeah, I think his influence on the on the Guardian series is... I mean, I think he itself admits that it's a bit double. It's a kind of Sorcerer's Apprentice story where he, I think, really wanted to contribute to the series, but then he found out that the actual sort of child or the intellectual brainchild of what came about in the series didn't exactly look what he wanted it to look like. And now I think he's a bit recoiling Frankenstein-like from what's actually out there. So um, I'm not I'm not entirely sure whether the the series is deeply, deeply Midian or what we're witnessing is just seeing that his offspring is not as pleasing as he'd like to think it is in that way.
0: Well, um, I hadn't heard of him before, I guess, last year, when his name started popping up everywhere, like every he was the person to cite on populism. But who exactly is he? Like, I mean, is he he seems like somebody was relatively irrelevant until recently?
1: Well, I think he's one of the people who really was uh, very early to what you call the populism boom. So in the late 90s, I think he worked with Peter Mayer for some time, and then in the early 2000s, he was the first to write this article called The Populist Zeitgeist," and I think it really launched populism as a buzzword and um, got a whole sort of populism industry going. And I think he's been a very, very successful gatekeeper, or in a sense, he's Maintain his status as a pioneer. So if you want to start out in the field of populism studies, there's no way you can't pay lip service to him in that sense
0: So how do you go in the pop get into the populism racket? I guess on one level if you wanted to get into the politics You just give Putin a phone call on the other level. How do you get into the academic (laughs) and academic field?
1: Um, Well, I guess um, (laughs) Everyone stumbles upon some kind of topic of interest at a certain point, but I what I remember is reading this French author called Jean-Claude Michia, who's a bit of a shady figure who's now closely associated with the Gilets jaunes as well, who's kind of seen as a, a, yeah what you could call a rat fascist, but who really wrote some fascinating books. And there's just one passage in one of the books where he takes a fragment from this magazine by and de Beauvoir in the 60s where they use the word populism in quite a laudatory, but at the same time descriptive way, and then he contrasts this to a different uh, passage in a French newspaper in the early 90s. And the question he asks is just like, um, how come there's been this massive semantic drift from this moment in the early 60s when populism could be used uh, in a more sort of neutral, less overheated way until the late 1980s when it was a sort of alpha and omega of political crisis already in Europe. And th- he just threw up this question as a sort of, Yeah, incentive to do research about it. And then I said, well, I mean, someone should actually look into what happened in those 30 years when the word populism really found its way to the European vocabulary. And I think that's how the ball got rolling.
2: Well, I guess one way of looking at this is that, you know, maybe populism isn't even the most useful word in the world. There's a lot of crap written about populism. It's become a crutch for a huge amount of people to describe things that they simply don't like. We're very conscious of the fact that populism might say more about the user than the object that they're willing to describe. And yet, I don't think there's a way of escaping the use of it. Maybe that's a question. Is there a way of escaping use of it? Uh, One thing that we're going to come on to discuss in a little bit more depth is Chantal Moves for Left Populism. And she characterized contemporary contemporary politics as being defined by this populist moment. So do you think this is a useful term, should we stick to it? And do you agree with Mouffe's characterization of this being a populist moment?
1: Well, I think, yeah, I think there's a descriptive and a normative question here and Descriptively, I definitely think that the word populism, even in the Midian census, captures a really central dimension of the crisis of political representation that certainly European polities are undergoing at the moment. And the, so there's, a, there's of course a danger that populism as an external referent for liberals who like to sort of evade the fact that there is a systemic crisis in European or Western or even global democracies more large and like to stick to these kind of surface readings where oh you have these sort of malicious individuals that convince voters with russian bots to vote for all these uh yeah badly mannered politicians in that sense the word populism has little descriptive value because it's just a way to deflect criticisms of a really decrepit liberalism but at the same time it's undeniable that um the way the Certainly, the party political landscape has been reordered in the last 20 years, where you have the sort of absolute decline of party membership. You have this growing void between elites and basically national populations just makes it almost inevitable that the word populism just captures a really, really important aspect of what we're living through. And I think, like, I agree with move that we're definitely living through some populist moment. But I'm much more sceptical and not very optimistic about what kind of political opportunity such a populist moment really offers. Because she sees it as a sort of opportunity to seize and it's a way to reinvent a moribund left. Well, I think it's it's actually yeah, just another sort of um, step in, in the vortex that's been dragging us down in the last 30 years, basically, certainly on the left.
3: Uh, the weird thing to me about the central claim of the book is that she? She's the one who made such a great effort to bury the left in the nineteen eighties to kind of get away from, you know, to make the kind of build the the theory for the rainbow coalition of um, gay rights, uh, green eco struggles, feminism, all of this to get away from traditional working class struggles, and now she turns around and says that she's, um, you know, wants to kind of bring about a left populist moment. And as if she has no had had no role herself to play in overcoming um, traditional kind of left politics through her theorising in the 1980s, um, because the Rainbow Coalition stuff was entirely absorbed into it was entirely absorbed into corporate neoliberalism. That became progressive neoliberalism.
1: Yeah, and I, I really I really agree with that judgment. So there's again a sort of sorcerer's apprentice story, as with Miller, where um, what you see, for example, with people who analogously to uh, start calling for a kind of left populism in the early 1980s, such as Laclau, but also someone like Stuart Hall, for example, who are, as you say, the first proponents of this British version of the Rainbow Coalition. Um, In the early 90s, there's a very, very strange moment where they're actually uh, very enthusiastic about this new figure in the Labour Party, called Blair, and they say Blair really exemplifies our populist approach. And then there's a kind of volte fast in the middle of the '90s, where they realize that Blair is actually not that big a break with Thatcherism as they wish he'd be. But at the same time, this moment of sympathy on behalf of Stuart Hall and even Ernesto Laclau at a certain moment for Blair has always has always really fa- it, it, it's always really fascinated me because, as you say, they, they there was this attempt to bury the left in the 1980s then came along a figure that they thought could carry out their job and actually did bury the left, but then he didn't bury the left in the right way. And now they have to resurrect a sort of zombie left, which is, yeah, infrastructurally no longer there because they've realized that they've actually maybe thrown out the baby with the bathwater. almost.
0: I just want to ask um, in terms of like, what do you mean by like burying the left in the wrong way? I mean, which way was the correct way to bury the left for them?
1: Well, I think they wanted to mainly, I mean, with Stuart Hall, it was mainly the idea to get the Labour Party to move away from a sort of classical, almost corporatist workerism, where you have this complete monopoly in the working class vote on behalf of the Labour Party. But you can't really expand beyond that. So he wanted to make it a sort of broader coalition that can actually draw in. Uh, yeah, a larger, yeah, a larger constituency. But and in the, same- the
3: middle classes and move away from producer-based um, disputes, I guess, disputes about um, the productive process, economic disputes and so on.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I don't think he saw, uh, I, I don't think he envisioned the actual destruction of, for example, the trade union movement. But at the same time, when you read people like La and Hall, on the minor strike, there's a there is a, there's a very strong sense in that they think that this kind of politics is just outmoded and belongs to a previous historical epoch. And this kind of struggle is actually alienating for this wider electorate uh, left-wing party should be appealing to. But at the same time, so again, um, I think there is this moment of trauma where they realize that this advocacy has gone too far, while you might even say, well, maybe Blair, Blair has just done uh, what they didn't really dare to do. And in the end, they realized that Blair was there. They've just, yeah, been the kind of useful apologist for Blair.
2: It's amazing, as Phil has already said, how easily recuperated these ideas were, the sort of Rainbow Coalition Went forward as a the kind of ideological substance to a sort of le- ne- left neoliberalism, uh, and it might be worth considering in these times when the sort of left populism of Mouffe is being proposed with slightly different characteristics now to what it was to what was done in 1985 when she wrote Hegemony and Social Strategy with Laclau. Uh, that perhaps her notion of the people and the citizen might also be too easily recuperated, uh, and maybe then it's worth considering what might be a more sort of solid anchor for uh, anti-systemic movements, which can't be so easily recuperated by capital.
1: Yeah, I think, like, um, if you want to talk about the, as we said, first populist of the 1990s, that was, again, Blair. I mean, this the whole idea of Blair was to stop talking about class and get the notion of the people involved, the way uh, he spoke after the death of Diana. I think he called her the people's princess. So this was completely consistent with the approach that was being proposed in the 1980s by the likes of Hall uh, and Laclau and Mouffe. But at at, this, at the same time, I also think that um, the way something like Hegemony and Socialist Strategy was written, but also the later works, um, is it's a bit like writing a sort of uh, Football guide or a guide on how to win a football game when you're already like 12 points behind and you've sold off all of your best players and you've just got a really really bad trainer in so um, a lot of these I think tactics are premised and predicated on defeat and also are premised on a kind of abdication um. Or an intellectual application on some really important questions such as the party what is the relationship between a party and a, and a larger sort of social movement and at the same time um, structurally or I'd say conjuncturally, left populism has always operated um, in a era of decline I think what Peter Mayer called the so-called era of ruling the void is actually mm. the natural habitat of left populism and I think um, this might sound very aggressive, but at the same time, I think left, left populism today is precisely attractive because this void is just a sort of structural fact that anyone who wants to engage in politics nowadays can no longer avoid. So what populism does is that it offers you a communication divide to actually bridge that void, and it also offers you a kind of illusion of immediacy and of handy political consultancy but it doesn't actually engage any real forms of political mediation that might ask the question, well, how do we get people... to actually influence political affairs in a very concrete way, and in this sense, left populism has always been sort of fatally indebted to the era of post democracy, basically, because at the same time, it, it's kind of a contestant of a post democratic consensus. This is our, always how poly- populism is, or left populism is also presented, like it repoliticizes things which have been shut out from uh, democratic decision making. But at the same time, there's a really, really weird correlation between the rise of post democracy. And the calls and the praxis of left populism. So, in a sense, I, I think they're they're actually sort of twin brothers who might engage in occasional fights, but who actually have a sort of very deep consanguinity on many fronts.
4: Mm. So, hi Anton. So, George here. First, a couple of things. First, uh, I think that's a very well deserved swipe at Mourinho and. Uh <laughs> just held to get there in there as a Liverpool fan. But um secondly, just just uh, just just to bring bring it back maybe a little bit to to Moose's book, and I think one of the things which struck me is that is that it takes a lot from Stuart Hall's analysis of Thatcherism. So Moose's argument is is clearly indebted to to the way that Stuart Hall conceptualized Thatcherism as a very successful political project. Um what do you think is is valuable in this, I guess, in this account that Moof presents? Um, and is there anything that's missing? I mean, I guess the the question is, is there anything that we can learn on the left from from Thatcher and um, this much maligned figure, at least in the, on on the British left?
1: Um, I'll be, be honest, I don't think there's that much really to salvage from Hall's analysis of Thatcherism, except for the fact that. Thatcher was really ruthless as a, as a politician, and if uh, the left wants to lear, learn a lesson in ruthlessness or political ruthlessness, or what you could call a sort of political maximalism, almost a la Lenin, I think Thatcher is a really good example. But at the same time, I think what Move mainly takes from Hall and what Hall is really famous for in his analysis, Thatcherism is a very, very culture, sort of media-based uh, explanation of what actually constitutes the success of the Thatcherite formula. So it's the idea because Thatcher had these sort of strategic henchmen within certain newspapers, because there is this sort of cultural bias within a certain section of the British media lead, that's the reason that Thatcher actually managed to convince such a large portion of the British electorate to vote for her. And it, I mean, it's I, mean of- the,
0: the, the, I mean, it's quite interesting, actually, the way you point to it, because in terms of like moves analysis of what is like distinctive about populism it's kind of basically like you need a good message and a charismatic leader and that's really the strategy it's kind of like she really buys this idea of like thatcher as this for singular singular force who just got the messaging right and thus was a success yeah i mean
4: th- just oh sorry anton just just to, to jump in ahead. i'd add, an, add another question there is, is there a danger of almost kind of accepting this and and moving too much towards a as you said a media and culture explanation because it seems like that's that's often a key ingredient of of analysis like crude analyses of populism that it's essentially oh it's all about social media and it's basically like all we need to do to get a left government in power is just to be a little bit better at twitter and a little bit exactly. more effective at, at, I mean so I guess my adding on to Ben's question my question is is this is it almost kind of a bit of a red herring a bit of a of a of a danger for for the left to say well okay if the lesson learned is we need to just have uh, all these civil society actors does this just lead us into spending more time on on twitter and actually not really achieving very much
1: well i think i think there's like again the question of whether hall's analysis of thatcherism is correct so the idea that the way she won was through soft power and not through the sort of hard coercive power of the state and then the other question is well i mean if if that analysis is correct is it a strategy that should be applied on the left as well and i think um, I mean, the soft power interpretation of Thatcherism, or the idea that soft power is really causally the most efficacious in uh, helping her win, is actually not that likely. I mean, there there had been there had been international pressure from even the IMF on Labour governments in the 1970s, and the way the miners' strike was broken was not through sort of cultural manipulation or the media; it was basically just by sending brute, uh, yeah, almost firepower to the north. And uh, breaking strikes. But
3: but I think also it's important. Sorry to interject, Anton. This is Phil, but um, I think it's also important though not to get trapped in this dichotomy between soft power and hard power. At the end of the day, um, I mean, I think, and this is the problem with the kind of Stuart Hall line, that it's all the idea is predicated on politics as manipulation. And exactly. um, politics as um kind of dark arts of persuasion. I mean, you can even I wouldn't I would even go as far as to say he's kind of setting up the theory of new labour spin doctors in advance of the in advance of the fact. The fact is that Thatcher managed to persuade sufficient numbers of voters to get through the British um, electoral system. And she did use the kind of hard power of the state, not least in Ireland as well as um as well as against the miners. But at the end of the day, she also had a political message that there weren't enough um, that, and that she was able to convince enough working class voters in a way that the Labour Party won't um, and that that stretched even past her defeat into the first major government. So, I mean, I think that's my, my concern with the Stuart Hall narrative is that it already kind of sets up the new Labour narrative and that it understands politics as this game of um, trying to insinuate yourself into people's consciousness without actually persuading them or winning them to some kind of vision
0: sorry i'm coming here uh, just as well following <laughs> phil because that's kind of like how uh thea raya frankus uh who is another scholar of populism in her review in n plus one uh of move's book which is called populism without the people if you want to check it out basically says that like her call for leadership with the impeding platform is basically like politics as normal but who is the base it's kind of like where do ordinary actors, working class people, people involved in actual struggles uh, come in in terms of this type of politics. It's really like they're kind of passive.
1: Well, I think I think like the media centrism, which is very uh, prevalent already in Hall's analysis of Thatcherism, has led to, for example, the, the caricature idea that the only thing the left needs to do is to. Stop the BBC from being so right-wing, and <laughs> get 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 some like that's Jewish hegemony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Which yeah, you, which is basically hegemony and when you uh, hear people such as Owen Jones or other people on the extremely online left constantly complain uh, complain about right-wing bias uh, in all these media quarters. And at the same time, I don't want to pretend that
3: that's why we be- set up our Banga bunga. bunga.
1: Well, but I think I think in the question, there's it's just the question of like what kind of institutions you really want to build. And I think um, because of the academicization of a large part of the left, they inevitably turn towards the media as the only way to relate to a sort yeah, of popular was, constituency. Just for, the,
3: just for the record for our listeners, that was a joke. We did not set up Afibanga Bunga <laughs> to um, take on the mainstream media or to construct uh, Stuart Hall-inspired leftist hegemony. To set it up for Owen Jones—that is entirely not our uh, <laughs> our plan.
4: Or, or thought, is it a joke? Wait until the Patreon uh, arrives and then make your own mind up, listeners.
1: But I thought this was your counter-hegemonic apparatus. I mean, this looks all very very impressive.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for complimenting our apparatus, but.
0: Uh... <laughs> well, well, you yeah. see, basically, if you look at our strategy properly, we're trying to make a Silvio Berlusconi of the left
2: that's it yeah
1: well exactly exactly and it, it and it, it's also again premised on this idea that well the only way you can build constituencies the only way that you can mediate between a base and a cadre is through spin doctors basically mm. so it is what you could call a sort of po- a permanent popular will speculation where you hire these specialists to read this like uh, set of desires or set of affects within the population and then you need to translate them in onto a level on the state which is again as phil says an extremely top-down and in a way also elitist view of what popular will formation actually consists in because it just means that you need to have these organic intellectuals who are kind of flying above this formless mass or this formless mob and then needs to rally them into a coherent project basically but at the same time it, it's just it just speaks to the sort of sociological composition of large parts of the left because they're stuck in the academia or because they're stuck in the media world and they have this feeling of helplessness, they try and rationalize and they try and remedy that feeling of helplessness by actually saying, well, it's not a problem that we're in this, uh, that we've been sidelined. It's not a problem that we're actually helpless because we can still do serious politics if only we do enough uh, handy left-wing PR, basically.
2: I think there's a certain kind of irony if we look at the trajectory From, you know, Thatcherism's ideological appeal to contemporary proposals for left populism, which is that if we're taking Thatcherism's ideological appeal seriously, even if we're you know understanding that it's restricted and it doesn't entirely explain uh, why she was able to transform British society, uh, that there was a lot of hard power in there as well. But nevertheless, if we understand her ideological appeal as resting on a certain populist notion of appeal to the ordinary man, to the taxpayer, to the family, to the individual versus you know classes or trade unions, um, if it rests on that, then you know the the the, the The opposition to that, as proposed by Stuart Hall, as as George and Anton have already discussed, was the sort of rainbow coalition. What the contemporary proposals for left populism seem to do on face value is to go beyond that, to appeal to a people which isn't based necessarily and so explicitly on a fragmented, divided up people's uh, consisting of various different identities. It seems to in some way be a return to at least this kind of, I don't know, pre-Marxist, radical Republican notion of the people against oppression, right? Um, I don't know if you agree with that kind of characterization, but at least on face value, that's what it sounds like to me.
3: I think that's a good point. I think that's a good point, Alex. But also, I mean, I think this is the the earlier point is she she's the one who tried to disassemble any sense of collective um popular yeah um, but that's actress. the, that's I mean, the she's irony she's want to try to disperse it and but it's this is what's so frustrating about her book is her refusal to take responsibility for her own role in bringing about the present so it's her own political mistakes and her own theoretical um conclusions that help hardly set up the our contemporary please.
2: problems i mean if we're going to be explicit here what is this people look like. I mean, the Gilets Jaunes is about as close as you can get to that in terms of contemporary examples, right? It is a people which has constituted itself out of nothing, uh, which sets up a, in opposition to a political elite, and which is rooted in sort of material demands, um, which, you know, may or may not be uh, dealt with by the current system or may completely exceed the, the capacity of the current system to, to, to respond to those demands. And and so there's no kind of rainbow coalition there, necessarily. There's a whole variety of different actors which are constituted in different ways. You do have the anti-racist struggle, which are which is part of it, which is, you know, as we discussed uh, at length in our previous episode. But nevertheless, you, you don't have this sort of fragmented people. They're all gilets jaunes. Um, so I think, but you're right, Phil, I, it, it, that she doesn't reckon with her own role in uh, precisely in pursuing fragmentation as a strategy.
0: You see, that's not how she sees it. I mean, uh, I don't think you're going to get like her, her own admitt- admittance that she was wrong. In fact, she'll probably say that she was right. Because if you look at uh, the way that, at least the narrative that Laclau and Mouffe's theoretical uh, work has constituted political advance, it's that, firstly, it was key to certain moments and theorists within the pink tide, which then came back into Europe through Podemos and Syriza. Mm. And in that sense, populism has been constitutive of this new new left, while uh, the legacies of Syriza in particular are quite mixed. And the pink tide has kind of rescinded.
3: Mild. That's a mild way to put it. I'm <laughs> yeah. yeah. being
0: purposely understated, but the point is that she sees her own work, and that's why she's intervening like this, as being a in, indicative of the success of recent left politics in return.
3: No, absolutely. And I mean, but I'm saying this is, you know, um, there's a fundamental dishonesty there, and a limit to how much she can offer us, precisely because she's unwilling to actually account for her own role in a way that's. Um, critical and able to actually take a full full um, engagement with it and it's striking in fact something that she says in the book is that Syriza was simply defeated she says that they were simply kind of pummeled pummeled into submission by the European Union um, which isn't actually in you know it's was Syriza failed I mean they failed they had choices and they made the wrong choices. And she's unwilling to countenance that. It's simply a show of force as to which why her favorite kind of Greek popul- left populists were defeated.
1: Yeah, I also think that the real problem, certainly with with the way the theory gets presented today, is that there is no recognition of what the conditions of possibility for left populism really are. So what has to happen to the party political landscape? What has to happen to the relationship or just the political field in general for that left populist strategy? Um, to actually work, and I think also when you look at the Syriza episode, so she says, "Oh, this obviously just failed." But at the same time, when just looking at uh, what happened um, in 2015, coming up to the referendum, and then the sort of um, yet yeah, dramatic surrender of the government, actually conforms pretty perfectly to the kind of left populist uh, cycle they set out. So you have the construction of a people out of all these disparate identities. You have, of course, within Syriza, a sort of hardcore, um, more classical unionists. um, But there is a clear broadening or sort of popularizing of the party as Syriza goes into government and takes on the Eurozone authorities, and there is the f- forming of a sort of chain of equivalence of all these different demands against this antagonistic pole known as Eurozone. And just on a purely descriptive level, but also normatively, this is just exactly what they asked for. But what they don't realize is that this is not... Um, a program for policy it's not necessarily a program for institutional reform it's just a way of building coalitions but there's no realization or no question whatsoever what you do once a coalition has actually been built and you want to translate politics into policy um, so Chris Bickerton has an amazing argument about the rise of a specific kind of techno populism also within Podemos for example where left populists are incredibly apt or incredibly good at seeing how politics happens but they're very very bad at realizing how politics might translate itself into policy so what you get uh with Syriza is basically a kind of politics without policy well what Wait, you get you this-
3: like you like that guy Chris Bickerton
1: <laughs> I'm afraid I'm afraid I have some interest to declare here as one of his uh, supervisees but I think <laughs> But I, I think it's the most insightful take on Syriza I know because it shows the success of the mobilization they started, also drawing on this sort of nationalist reservoir in Greece. But in the end, when you see Varoufakis go to these Eurozone meetings, who is the prime technocrat, who is really a product of this this kind of pan-European academic uh, leap that's been constructed after Maastricht, um is is a sense of well, he can do the policy, but he can't do the politics while well, syeds at home can do the politics, but they can't do the policy. and the sense populism or left populism remains weirdly compatible with technocracy, uh, which is again just an expression of helplessness because move just says, oh yeah, and then they, Then they just failed. Uh, Pressure was too strong. But at the same time, I don't want to deny that the pressure was too strong. But you also can't deny that there was no clear plan within Sarita whatsoever as to how uh, they were going to force this specific change onto the Eurozone. There was
4: just. uh, Yeah, no, just saying that's a really, really good point. The, you know, compatibility of of populism, uh, left populism, and technocracy, which I think often gets underplayed. That it's a kind of an escape from, from this, or a kind of uh, it, it's somehow um, its opposite, but they're actually two sides of the same coin, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and I think also this is Blair already incarnates this kind of Janus yep. faced combination very well, because at the same time, Blair is a lover of the people. He's a sort of a populist avant la lettre in the 1990s, but I mean, the New Labour is also the prime technocratic party. So you have all these things mm. by Alistair Campbell in the late 90s where he said, oh, we want like value-free policy, we need to depoliticize uh, the civil service. So populism and technocracy already have this really, yeah, romantic wedding in the 1990s. What we're seeing now is that structurally also left populism is now realizing that it's actually fatally indebted to that kind of technocratic twin.
2: Hey, sorry, just going to jump in here. I wanted to ask all our loyal listeners for a little favor. If you like Alpha Bunga Bunga, please review us. Even if you dislike us, go ahead, review us. Just go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. It would be greatly appreciated. So thank you very much in advance. Also, you might consider following us on social media. We've changed our handle to be easier to spell. Uh, We're now at BungaCast on all networks. That's B-U-N-G-A-C-A-S-T. We know lots of you listen, but not that many of you follow us on social media, which is fair enough. But we're going to be doing more on there from now on, so if you want to give us a follow, that'd be great. And, of course, tell your friends. Times are becoming increasingly turbulent, so in 2019, Alpha Bunga Bunga is where you want to be. I'll stop the self-promotion now. Back to populism. We've set up populism, and now I think maybe we should try to take it apart a little bit. Uh, which is something that I referenced in the in the beginning, but I think first of all I need to make a point about Jose Mourinho. I think he is precisely an example of a right wing populism. He's basically a means a means of allowing the elite to parade itself as the downtrodden and the excluded. Uh, kind of a way of, of conferring a sort of underdog grit to what are effectively aristocrats. I mean, he preferred he perfected this at Nouveau-Riche, Chelsea, who were vastly richer than than any actual sort of aristocratic club, you know, more traditional club. And he, and he tried to do it at Manchester United. He even did it at the most aristocratic club of all, uh, Real Madrid. There's
0: a fact he has fallen consistently and
2: after three years
0: since his stint at Real Madrid, mean that there's a structural weakness to the new populist wave? Does that mean we only have three years of Bolsonaro to look forward to? Or does Trump going into his third year have downfall on his mind?
2: Well, indeed, I mean, this is uh, this is the thing. So one interpretation of populism is that it's people like Farage, who pretends to be a sort of parvenu, an outsider, but who's actually pretty much a member of the elite, but who confers this aura of outsiderness to what are the ultimate insiders? Uh, so it's really just a means of the elite perpetuating itself under, under new guys. There's that. But then there's the other interpretation of, of populism, which is just a mental breakdown from the liberal establishment what we've otherwise called neoliberal order breakdown syndrome where you see a populist boogeyman everywhere you look in every dark corner of the demos effectively anything which is popular is populist and therefore incipiently fascist because anything with large masses involved must be fascist right um so you kind of got two different images of 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 populism i'm not quite entirely happy with with either of them but but maybe let's start from here let's try to kind of break up this notion uh, of what populism is and isn't um is it something that we can use so indiscriminately
3: well i think but what anton was saying i think is um is very useful that there is um the, there is a politics of tightly wedded together technocracy and populism that we can see across the 1990s with people like blair and of course our icon, Big Silvio himself, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, The difference, I think, is that it's now, it's structural. It's um, given the disintegration of the political mediating institutions, representative government, all the things that are supposed to connect the state to civil society, given that those traditional connections have disintegrated, it's now a structural condition, um, more than just the kind of style of government, as with Blair affecting the, to be the representative or the courtier to the people's princess.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right, and I I think you can even see this that the most staunchly self declared anti populist movement the. Movement against Brexit or the call for a second referendum has to call itself the people's vote because it's just structurally coerced mm. into using a populist language because they don't have any base really to draw on. It is a form of astroturf politics. And even though this coalition has posed as the savior of Britain from the populist menace, what they themselves then do when they have to get the middle classes to go on a picnic on Sunday is <laughs> use a, a paradoxically populist language because not, we like I, you I,
3: very much, Anton we like you very
1: much (laughs) no because it it is not um it's not just bad faith so you could say oh this is just them being this is just a, a case of opportunism at the same time it's also uh as you say shows the kind of structural necessity of using a populist language nowadays if you want to bridge the gap that has grown between civil society and the state and this means that even liberals who will declare populism the sort of apocalyptic end of Western civilization, when they themselves have to do the semblance of popular mobilization, have to use a populist language. And I think this is what you saw already with Blair, is a a smoother um, wedding of those two extremes, but nowadays it's just oscillating far more uh, chaotically.
2: Mm, And we see the example like with with Orbán, for example, which we've discussed on a previous episode, where that in some ways points at a a potential trajectory even for Western European nations where you adopt right right wing populist and nationalist forms of discourse, uh, oppressive um, sort of reaction against whatever, whoever they wish to clash as outsiders, but actually maintain a, a basic neoliberal recipe in terms of your political economy.
0: I think one part of the, what's interesting here about what you're saying in terms of needing to maintain a populist discourse in order to have some sort of connection to uh, the masses or a base is uh, often you kind of see in terms of this elite populism or the elite's version of populism, just the contempt they have for the people in terms of what they promote. At one level, for instance, the people's vote, it's that a huge mass of the British public was seduced by Putin's miracle propaganda or like some sort of primordial racism. Or in the case of, say, Bolsonaro, it's like just open appeals to racism and hatred. In this, you can kind of see that the elite has a very low vision of the people, and part of what this uh, populism, or whatever you want to call it, reveals is that the sort of elite contempt for the masses comes out as their only way to appeal for it because they have a very low view of them.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's again exactly right. I just the sort of conspirationist trope. You see also in the Guardian series where they ran at least 12 articles last month on Bannon as this sort of glorious and heroic boogeyman who was able to manipulate uh, Michigan's and all these other states into voting for Trump just by snapping his fingers. Also shows that the elite itself is just more conspiratorial than any kind of... uh, uh, yeah, any kind of worker uh, on the laptop uh, in the evening who is posting comments on some kind of conspiratorial site. It, it's just also because they can't conceive that there is this systemic problem in Western democracies na- nowadays. They don't want to actually uh, dig through the surface. And so what they have to do is fall back on conspiracy thinking in order to have a comforting narrative of how, oh, well, the only reason that there has been this massive populist upsurge is because there's a small set of really evil people. And I don't know whether you've seen this, but there's now a series by HBO called Brexit. I think Benedict Cumberbatch plays uh, Dominic Cummings, who's supposed to be the mastermind ha- behind the Leave campaign. But the whole analytical presupposition of that series is that the reason 52% of uh, Brits voted for Brexit is because they, were, they saw a list of yeah, well-timed ads, which this guy Cummings paid for at the right time. So there's a sort of really aggressive, almost nuclear assault on the idea that everyone has the same level of democratic intelligence, which is at the same time very, very conspiratorial because the idea is that Cummins, Cummings single-handedly caused the Brexit vote. But at the same time, there's this idea like, oh, well, these people are so plainly stupid that they'll just vote for anything after they've had the right amount of propaganda uh, injected into them.
4: It's it's kind of interesting how populism often condenses those those forces into the the single figure of that the charismatic leader or or political political genius. But maybe a, a slightly different um different sort of set of questions. And this is the relation of, of populism isn't a I guess you might call it sort of law and order. Um. So in in Hall's original analysis of populism and Thatcher, to, to go back back to that. Although we made be have rejected it already in this episode he brings up this um and i think you also have done earlier this the the disciplinary or repressive side of the state so i guess there's a kind of maybe two general questions here how do you see populism as relating to maybe and this possibly touches on brexit as well um relating to a, a sense of losing control over the direction of society or or maybe reverting to security and order as a a solution maybe to this, this, these complexities or these felt insecurities.
1: Well, I I don't think I have the most, maybe Phil has some more interesting thoughts on this, but my first hunch would just be that, um, um, we live, we live in an era of, of ascendant technocracy. Um, but the reason that technocracy and populism uh, are born together is precisely because technocracy realizes that it needs this sort of counterpart which can give it a semblance of legitimacy. So it's the distinction between like input and output legitimacy where, oh, we only care about... Uh, the output, the input doesn't really matter anymore. And I think um, this discourse of law and order or sort of really, really frantic emphasis on legality, which you also see in the American case with people such as Mueller and the whole Russia investigation, where you have these freaks who are obsessed with, uh, yeah, what they call norm core politics. It's like, oh my God, uh, there's norm erosion, people are violating norms. But at the same time, the obsession with legality actually is not really an obsession with legitimacy. If you see what all these people like Mueller have been doing in the last 20 years is that they've been vamping up the national security state. They've been happy to bomb whatever country in the middle East. And this, yeah, this kind of need to emphasize legality over legitimacy, I think also translates into the way technocrats use these populist tropes to still yeah, give themselves a sign of aura that, uh, they're actually legitimately endowed with all this decision in power. So
4: it's it's is it too simple to say that that populism is is the, the the desperate need to try and fill that that gap with popular or mass mobilisation that that technocratic politics creates?
1: Yeah, I think I think it just offers the illusion of mediation. I think so. The, the, mm-hmm. law, the discourse of law and order gives you the idea that there is actually a. A strong enacting of a popular will on the state level while at mm. the same time this is a, a, com- a completely illusionary and uh, it's just it's just it's a sort of empty compensation for a, a different form of mediation that's become historically impossible basically
2: mm. well i think one of the relating to this one of the things which always strikes me is the way that in its in populist practices they, there's so much divergence within it that it's really, it's very hard to use that term to describe a definite set of political practices or or a sort of definite ideology. And one of the most unifying factors is actually in language and in discourse. And that's what unifies populists in their appeal to a people, an unmediated relationship between a charismatic leader and the people. Um, but also the, their especially in, in the contemporary European post-political sphere, uh, they're raising of, of dissensus, of disagreement, of, of agonism as, as an actual political practice, as opposed to the sort of post-political practice of consensus, of always consensus-seeking. Um, and this is one of the reasons why... So many kind of establishment liberals lose their heads and, you know, what you called norm core politics, which actually I found kind of funny because it was a different use of norm core to what I'm used to. But this insistence on on norms or acting in a Republican manner, which is basically that, you know, you need to follow the etiquette of politics, which has been established by post-politics. And so one of the unifying factors of populism seems to me to be a precisely a disrespect for those post-political norms. And so Berlusconi plays at that very well and and says, you know, all these vulgar things. Trump says these vulgar things, people like Bolsonaro, because he says, I'm just going to shoot people and doesn't couch his words in all the post-political niceties of of the ways that we you know we're going to humanitarily intervene to bomb the shit out of some countries, you know, that, that sort of um, form of disguising your intentions, and populists seem to, seem to not disguise their intentions. I mean, do you think that there's something in this, that what most unifies populists is in this sort of rhetoric and in the breaking of post-political linguistic discursive norms?
1: I, I think what really distinguishes populism today, as you say, is the realization of a collective uh, trauma. So I think um, populism is a wrong headed response to a real uh, repression. Because I think when you think of the term post democracy, you really have to realize that um, mass democracy is actually quite a recent product. So the 20th century, although people are now trying to dismiss it as a sort of age of totalitarianism, was also a massive leap forward for humanity in that for the first time, you have these enormous uh, groups of people who are being pulled into politics, who actually have a say in governance, which is just so unlike anything that came before even in the 19th century. So with the the introduction of the mass franchise and the creation of these mass parties, um, there there is this real sense that for the first time, people are actually having a say in, in governance. What you see in the last 30 years is that po- um, politics... I think even globally, but certainly in, the, in in Europe and the Western world has returned to a form of court intrigue. So it's, it's a lot of Royal infighting uh, and it's mainly the exercise of unelected power. Whether you think of central banks, whether you think of something like the European commission, which is really, really not different from a sort of 18th century French Royal court, because there's just no way of finding out uh, uh, how like this intercourt communication really happens. But the big, problem with the exercise of this unelected power now, uh, politically, is that it comes after an age in which people uh, experience like mass mobilization, which is such a difference from the kind of uh, yeah, mob you had in the 18th century, which had no sense that one day it might be able to exercise its democratic rights. And I think populism recognizes that there has been this sort of act of mass repression where the massive expansion of democratic rights of the 20th century has basically been reversed. And now the people are again in the state of passivity, which resembles the 18th century. But at the same time, they've also been through an episode which actually saw them exercise a certain amount of control. And I think populism recognizes this uh, problem very acutely. It sees that something has gone awry, but at the same time, just because like a patient knows that there is a problem doesn't mean that patient has a clear idea on what the best cure is for its problem. So I think you should take populism as the authentic expression of a real collective trauma, but not necessarily as the best corrective or the sort of best uh, remedy for the actual disease, basically.
2: So you've put the question very clearly there, I think. To what extent can populism be productive of a new political solution? I think from what all we've said so far we wouldn't endorse wholeheartedly or 100% Chantal Mouffe's proposal for left populism. But at the same time, we understand that it might be a means of repoliticizing society, of an attempt to regain those rights or to restart a kind of agonistic politics. Uh, So as a way of concluding, um, as people committed to a class-based politics of socialism, effectively, How should we engage with populism in a productive manner? Should we reject it on materialist grounds? Do we need to maybe return to a certain Republican notion of the people as a good starting point at a time in which the old rhetoric of class especially in reference to an industrial working class doesn't have the so- same sort of effective appeal anymore uh, and maybe Mouffe is correct that we need that are that the sort of a- a- effective and aesthetic appeal should be based more on a notion of democracy the people citizens rather than workers as uh, traditionally understood by socialism
3: I think I mean the it needs to be it has to be rejected and there's no I don't think it will I'd be more sceptical about uh, the achievements of the 20th century than Anton was. Um, but I also think it should be rejected, not because of uh, materialism or anything like that. I think populists will be quite good at um, providing uh, giveaways. If you think of the Law and Justice Party in Poland or Salvini's budget, what he's trying to do with that and his showdown with the EU Commission. I think the issue is it fails to political, political representation. And our problem is lack of political representation. So that's the reason to oppose it.
0: I think also there's a distinction. I think this comes out of like the sort of hysterical nobs esque uh, sort of centrism between uh, populism and popular. People generally have lost the political imagination to think of popular political projects in the sense they involve uh, mass action, uh, the popular classes or whatnot, uh, without being populist. Somehow that's become confused. And in that sense, I would like to say that, like, uh, what we've seen is that um, the specter of populism or bringing up things like anti-corruption has become a way of offering something uh, when you just don't have any programmatic uh, innovations or anything mm-hmm. to really offer your base.
1: Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I really agree with the idea that um, it, it, structurally it's, it's, it's almost become inevitable to buy into these populist strategies, but just because you're coerced into buying into them doesn't mean we actually have to do them. We have to accept them as a given. Um, and as you say, as long, um, I mean, I, I've, I'll say that I'm reasonably agnostic on whether a populist strategy is the best idea. I mean, if there are real practical results, I'm, I'm willing to admit that maybe there's some sense in it. But at the same time, what you see nowadays, both in theory and in practice, is a sort of complete abdication of so many crucial questions, certainly of uh or organization. I think populism, certainly left populism, just takes the disorganization of a society today as a given and then decides to act with that parameter. While I think the question of the party or the question of how you rebuild a sort of powerful, for example, trade union movement is almost never asked. And in the sense at the same time that's just an obsession with the media and imagery and as you say these easy bounties such as anti corruption or just handouts. And this is a kind of plebeian um yeah, it's a kind of plebeian republicanism, which belongs more to the Ancien Regime, really, than it belongs to our current era of late modern democracy. So I'm, I'm agnostic, but that agnosticism often slips in what I call a very strong skepticism.
2: All right, that's it for now. Join us on the 3rd of January for the first in our Uber Mention of Capital series, How Liberal Capitalism Itself Sets Up Heroic Authoritarian Figures, in order to justify itself or save its own skin. The first in that series is about entrepreneurial douchebags with Alex Gurevich. There's lots more exciting stuff planned throughout 2019. We've got new sounds, a new look, live events, more series, and the sharpest guests around. Catch you in the new year and have a very happy whatever you might celebrate. Bye-bye.
1: Um, I just wanted to ask Phil about um, about the 20th century. Because my, I get, I get your point. Oh,
2: don't get him started on that, fuck's sake!
1: <laughs> no, it's just I get that it's the era of failed revolution. At the same time, I have a feeling there's now an attempt as just to paint it monochromatically, almost as a sort of totalitarian nightmare. And I very much disagree with this idea that the 20th century obviously was a disaster in many ways, but it also, for the first time, uh, showed what it meant for people to actually be involved in institutions. I think we're in danger of losing even the realisation that that was once possible, basically.
3: Um, I think, I mean, I'd agree with you that there's a danger of losing that, but I don't think I would um, badge it with the 20th century. And I think the every, every engagement with the 20th century has to come from the frank acknowledgement of failure for the left. I think any attempts to redeem it in various ways, oh, you know, women won the vote, or Gorbachev stopped the Cold War, or... <laughs> Hitler, Hitler beat the Nazis, and the sorry, um, Stalin beat the Nazis, and all that. Always,
2: I told you not to ask him about, the, about this about the twentieth century. <laughs>
3: no, but it's uh, yeah, I mean, twentieth se- se- it, it always
2: should
3: be remembered as redeeming, like sorry, redeeming failure. And I think that's you know, it has to be. You have to start the. I think the best, actually, the best account is still the one that's in Hobsbawm's book, where he talks about the astonishing um, age of extremes, age of contradiction. Um, but the age, you know, the age of um, the failure, the, the left's failure has to be the starting point, I think. And anything which doesn't start from there is fundamentally dishonest.
4: He he also he also talks about the just the, the change of the change of the of, of life and the change of the pace of life just massively accelerating as well. So, I mean, it's, you know, politically uh, very mixed bag, but socially. I mean, it's it's, it's
3: not unbelievably. A mixed bag. It's it's just it's a astonishing defeat and setback for humanity. Well, it's except, a, like, except but this is the thing.
2: This is the thing, though. Are we today in the twenty first century meant to adopt the perspective of the nineteenth century, in which case you conclude with Phil that the twentieth century was a disaster? So much potential, a certain telos was not reached, and in fact there were so many deviations, setbacks, disasters. Right. That's one way to look at it. The other is that from the from the after the defeats looking at it in the 21st century looking back you know it does look like the post war period in the rich countries was a peak of of civilization uh you know a, a trans historical golden age genuinely without irony in that the great masses were for the first time in human history incorporated into Po- politics, effect, into into forms of rule, had a higher uh, standard of living. There was fast advances in
3: it's just not true. Yeah. They were incorporated into corporate estates after having been totally pulverized, won to totalitarian war machines in the Second World War. And yet and yet West,
2: and yet was the, the condition the West, was the condition of the working class not better in the middle the part of the twentieth century German than in the
3: first happened is because the German workers have been defeated by fascism. The post war miracle is pre-programmed into the fact that the German workers had no way to resist capitalism in the 50s and 60s.
0: I think the 21st century, if we are to believe uh, the current narrative, we are witnessing uh, the reign of possibly the most powerful leader in the history of uh, you know the last 200 years, which is Putin. Elon Musk. It, Putin doesn't need hard <laughs> power. Putin has the ability to seduce, cajole and control with, the mere, with mere thoughts most of the, power, most of the uh, power blocks of Western Europe and, it seems, the
2: United States.
0: We just this need to win Putin over to
2: socialism and then we'll be fine. Like, you can just do it for us.
0: So basically, we have to get Putin to go back to his ideology 40 years ago. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Rule by KGB. That's the grand future that we're painting.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at what actually goes on in, in Europe nowadays, it's not that far off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the point, I, I think, just to respond to you again, Phil, is is more like, Um, it sounds like a really lame way of responding, but a dialectical take on the 20th century should also, uh, should of course start with the acknowledgement of failure, but at the same time, the kind of revisionist move you really want to resist is the idea that it was not even worth trying or that the century didn't open on a more promissory note. I mean, because, I mean, this is the whole point of your book basically is that from 19... 14 to 1923 there's a real chance that humanity might actually uh, take a better uh, yeah actually take a better turn And I think what you see nowadays is just a tendency to say like oh but the kind of questions that people try to answer in the 20th century were the wrong questions all along. Well I think that's intellectually very dangerous because, we are we really at danger of just uh, yeah? There's still much like common sense knowledge certainly within the Marxist tradition that's been completely squandered and lost. So if this is also when you read Muf, it's just like if you if you'd read like one page of Lenin or if you'd read one page of the Political Marx, then there are so many of these dogmas that could just be suspended instantaneously.
3: Oh, absolutely, and I I agree with that very much. Um, and I also think I mean it's um, trying to. There's no escape from our tasks so it's a point I mean I've been it's a point I've been um, making with response to brexit is that all the the props are all there um, you know the a disaffected deeply disaffected and a working class a capitalist economy that's um, uh, in trouble in all sorts of ways a ruling class that's in total disarray political institutions that aren't functioning. Um, the state in crisis. All of the all Can't... the props and the scenery are there, and the actors are missing. And this is the only thing that's missing is the actors. But the theatre has already been has just been set up for us. The scenery and the props have all been set up for us,
4: um, an, as if an you know, emergent, very invisible, yeah, an emergent podcasting network that can
0: <laughs> organize <laughs> people. The apparatus. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, you can actually see it's getting political. We're living in a political moment by the fact that has completely changed her usual, usual impenetrable and uh, painful writing style to make something that if it's not quite well written is at least semi-accessible it's That's only, a really s- good it's, point, only it's only 60 percent is impenetrable yeah it's no
3: only... no no it's good man i was amazed i mean ben is absolutely right and you know there was this you there thought it was
0: this... well written
4: it's
3: very lucid. She makes well, her, I mean, I disagree. In comparison
0: to hegemony and socialist. Absolutely. Sure oh,
3: sure, sure. And but she that's she the gives point. We all agree. She gives a good account of, um, you know, she gives a perfectly serviceable, good account of populism, I think, in conventional kind of understanding. Um, she makes her case kind of fairly clearly. And there was, you know, this misogynist take in the academy that Laclau was the brains behind the outfit. Um, but I think, you know, looking at this, um, you know, it seems to me that she's very, very clear. Even if she evades her own respons- political responsibility for our current problems, um, you know she writes clearly and she's capable of conceptual thought.
2: Ugh, I don't know. I thought po- <laughs> that like political... mean with faint she's capable of conceptual thought. <laughs> 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 she has you know, object you know,
4: permanence. Well done. Well, uh, I mean, no, but I thought the, <laughs> the, the political, the political, like um, recommendations, such as they were, were just like terrible. <laughs> I really did like that it. Was book. A good, I'm we should ask was... Anton there. He's our he's he's the guest. He's the expert. You know, we, well, we know what the, the four of us think. We're much more interested but, in what somebody actually knows what they're talking about thinks.
1: I think I think there's still too much of a Blairite hangover when it comes to spelling out um Again, what her political vision entails practically, because it's, I mean, I don't want to call it sloganeering, but there's a sense in which she's happy to stick with the abstractions because that will make it more serviceable for her to be taken up by actual political movements because it's both so general uh, and so vague at the same time that you can basically do anything with it. And I mean, this is, I mean, this is again what Chris Bickerton highlights is just like there is no vision of policy there. I mean, obviously you see, I mean... yeah, Corbynite labor has been very, very big on policy at the same time but um, uh Given the question, for example, ending central bank independence, actually reordering British political economy in a very drastic way, are things that are really not yet on the table. And Muft just speaks to this kind of, again, abdication that she doesn't want to ask those questions because it's not at the center of her her approach. She's really, really focused on strategy and how you build a coalition. But I mean, what Syriza shows is that, well, you can get the coalition, but then you can clearly, clearly just lose that coalition in one day because there is no... uh, uh, yeah, it, it never petrifies or never never solidifies into institutions. And if you can't actually make a coalition uh, inhabit institutions, then I don't see how you have any durable vision for politics. Basically, uh,
0: so that, that's the whole thing with like this sort of movement of movements, uh, or as Phil called it, the rainbow coalition, as a sort of a natural tendency in an age where a bunch of different struggles are popping up. They're naturally going to come together and like moves on to that question: If you articulate them as a common people which have a shared struggle, that's enough. But there's no question of organizational form, of how to exercise power or policy of things which create something that goes beyond sort of a brief moment where perhaps you're capable of winning an election or winning an opinion poll. There's no, that's the whole thing with these movements of movement things. The natural tendency is assumption that when people take to the streets or when people start voicing issues or civil society is highly mobilized uh, to use a really horrible phrase, uh, that it's naturally going to lead to progressive outcomes. But I think what we've seen in the last few years, and I guess if you look at the 20th century, is that this simply isn't true. I mean, part of uh, who I think has got a very really interesting argument on this is Dylan Riley. You should all read his essay in the New, New Left Review, which sort of makes reference to this, that he argues that in some ways fascism is an authoritarian democracy, which is precisely a product of a highly mobilized civil society incorporated within a political project, rather than some sort of intrinsically anti-democratic in the sense of like just straight authoritarian uh, without association or organizations being part of it experience.
3: I think the thing that's missing, and I don't know if this is the key to um, a deeper insight into the limitations of populism, but the thing that was missing with Syriza was the will to self-rule. At the end of the day, they simply did not want to rule Greece, and they didn't wish to put the question of self-determination before the Greek people. And as long as they were unwilling to do that, then they would be cucks to the EU or Varoufakis would cuck them to the EU. And that's what happened. Um, I think that question of do you want to rule yourself and do you want control over your life is the most, you know, I mean, it's the most single important political question. And I'm not sure it's the one that, uh, um, that the left is willing to ask, let alone whether populists are willing to ask it.
1: Uh, yeah, I agree again. And I mean, this is also what you see when Varoufakis is moving into the European level now, is that his proposal for a reformed Europe is basically, oh, let's get some Keynesian technocrats in the ECB, as long as the, all these sort of badly trained uh, or the liberals are pushed out of uh, Frankfurt and we populate this institution with my guys, then everything will be fine and we'll be able to have an expansionary, uh, yeah. Jesus, expansionary. <laughs> and, and I think no, but it pays, it,
4: Phil again, say, again. say what
1: you really think,
2: <laughs> I, think it, I think it gets hard to, to it's wrong to call someone who's might just be merely deluded a, a, a cunt because you know cunt, cunt implies some intentionality to be a cunt and I don't no, think he think, wills think himself he's, into he's, being a cunt he's politically the most
4: deluded person possibly in the entire world as costas <laughs> as, Kostas, right, yeah. as Kostas lapovitsas put it a man whose experience shows that the eu can't be reformed arguing that it it can
0: and he i'm is... sorry hillary clinton beats him in that respect I'm oh sorry. yeah she gonna run again yeah at, at least uh, to, yeah as oh. believes in something
4: will she run again will she run believe he believes in in himself i guess
1: um, I think she's she's gonna run, run until she dies. I think she's she's just. <laughs> we'll be will be in 2050 and it'll be like, oh, we're in the eighth run of Hillary. This
2: is cyborg Hillary will finally rule over us. Well, you know,
1: it's a death
0: cult. It's going to be Chelsea Clinton after she's done. Well, so she's like Forrest Gump
4: or a shark. She just has to keep running, keep keep moving for the entire. So
0: you're of saying couple... but, uh, Hillary Clinton is a Forrest Gump of American politics. <laughs>
3: No, no. <laughs> Just George, turns no. up at... A,
2: no, because Forrest Gump turns up at opportune moments. Hillary kind of does the opposite.
3: <laughs> you No, uh, George, you made a very fine point, I think, about Hillary being a great tragic figure of um, contemporary politics in a way that hasn't been properly appreciated thus far.
4: Ah, thank you. I mean, I didn't make that this evening. I've made that previously, but yeah. No, I know,
3: but I mean, it seems like this is the natural moment to bring this point back to our listeners.
4: Uh, uh, are Our listener's still listening at this point. I thought we yeah totally
3: least... listening.
2: Um, <laughs> we have no that... feedback. There's no way of knowing this right at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, no, I mean
4: that that is yeah. I do firmly believe that she is she is a great great tragic figure. You know she she cannot appreciate just how how damned her 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 project is and how she's completely isolated from the American public and that's why her her will to power such as it is um drives her onto these increasingly doomed and and dreadful campaigns
2: i mean if she has any sort of self-consciousness and sense of history which you know it, it's debatable whether she does or not but she, she must doesn't. she would surely then see i mean her bitterness and a sense of her own tragedy would be directly in reference to the fact that she missed the moment that it was that that yeah. it had to be pre financial crisis and then then she could have had her time so if she's the slightest bit aware she would know that the, the her her own bitterness if she feels that she deserves to rule and she obviously does and even if we were to agree that she should have deserved to rule at a certain moment then that moment has definitely gone and that's probably why she f- feels really bitter you know
3: it was it was Cory Robin made the point um in the sense that you know she is um, she's an intelligent, accomplished woman. You know, I mean, she doesn't have much to her name in terms of um, actual kind of policy success because her attempt to reform healthcare under the Clinton administration famously went terrible. She's a terrible warmongering neocon and all of that. But um, you know, she's she kind of embodied the hopes of a particular kind of generation of um, of post sixty eight women, and they were entirely crushed and taken away. And I think so. There is um, I think there is a tragedy to her if you see her in the context of a particular kind of generational ascent that was thwarted. But the lack of tragic figures in politics is important, I think, because it's partly a reflection of neoliberalism as well. I think they just kind of go from, uh, you know, it's just another job, another high paying elite job where you go to Davos, you can go like as David Cameron as a PR man or an ad man or something, or as Tony Blair sucking off like a Central Asian dictator, or you can go as the (laughs) prime minister of Britain. You know, it's all the same thing. And so that um, sense of political tragedy has gone, I think. Maybe uh, maybe Gordon Brown was the last kind of tragic figure of British politics.
4: Oh, Varouf, Varouf, sorry. Uh, uh, Varoufakis, I think. It's, it's a very good
0: point. But I think uh, well, Varoufakis... If you want real tragedy, just come to Latin America. I'm sorry, but Brazil is too tragic right now. There's No, no, but no, no, no. But not
3: it, with individuals.
0: It's not to say yeah, well, obviously this
3: national tragedy. Oh, yeah, Dilma, Dilma, a, Dilma. That's true. Actually, there is a and, tragic and, character. And, to Dilma.
0: And, or Lula, the most popular president, the most successful politician of recent history,
2: ending up in the in jail. That's extremely tragic. I'm not sure. Classes. I'm not sure it's classes for actual tragedy, though. I mean, you it's know, not
3: it's, tragedy. That's defeat. I think. Yeah. And it's tragic for Brazil, but I'm not sure it's it's not tragic in the way that. Um, it's not tragic in the way that, uh, you know, you uh, get kind of...
2: Orgum period in power was more tragic. Yes, I think that you power can make the and case for tragedy realize, there. realize the potential of the moment.
3: And also, I mean, un- to underestimate the force, you know, of all people, for them to, un- you know, I mean, Jilmer-like being tortured by the military dictatorship, you know, for people like them to underestimate what they're yeah. up against. Um, that That is actually tragic.
1: Yeah. The, the, the function of uh, Hillary in the liberal imaginary, which has really been sort of shaken to the courses, the populist revolts so of 2016 is also, she She has to remain because she keeps the whole ideology together. She's the kind of sort of empty heart um, that actually gives liberalism its coherence, which actually structurally no longer has. And I think you, um, I think it's a, her generation, which is really the kind of West Wing generation as well. Um, so all the people who watch the West Wing, but there's this crazy moment in the West Wing where um, all of the an entire generation grew up on this series. So instead of Rawls or Marx or Isaac Deutscher's biography of Trotsky, uh, the idea was now you have to watch the West Wing because this is going to give you your indispensable initiation into politics. But even there, um, there's this moment when uh, Bartlett, who's this, uh, yeah, Lipcock president, as they say within the West Wing, um, actually wants to introduce a Kind of Medicare bill, very similar to the one I think the Clinton wants want to introduce, and it obviously fails. Like there are three episodes, and it's a complete failure. But still, the series manages to spin it into this sort of success story where oh, but they they try valiantly, but still they failed. And I think this is even in their wildest dreams, as someone said, liberals fail to just fail to do anything. They don't <laughs> accomplish anything because the West Wing is a sort of. <laughs> psychoanalytical fever dream and still there there, their their fantasies about failure and I think the same is the same for Hillary's like people ask how can she like keep on insisting that she's the chosen one in the face of so much demoralization and falsification but at the same time I think yeah but that's exactly the point because liberals have this addiction um, liberals have become addicted to a certain sense of decline almost in that sense so uh
2: if we're being really self-critical here we could say that the left has as well i mean if you look at certain Absolutely. left responses certainly in the past totally. 2 3 years to the emergence of protests you can see with the you know the gilets jaunes which is something we talked about last time around which is to see people on the streets, to see the possibility of power, to see the possibility of even just being merely popular amongst a segment of the population and a rejection of that from certain leftists, even left intellectuals, and just to think, well, I'm actually happier in our little marginal position being the most pure, honest, true leftist out there. Fuck You see this totally hurt. in the United States. I mean, like, basically, like, the whole anti-Bernie left uh, insisting that
0: anyone who supports Bernie or, like, the Bernie project is like a sheepdog project back project backer democratic party instead of like a unexpected uh rise of socialism again uh, they're still grumbling on as just basically we like people now agree with us this is terrible i hate it no he is he is a he
3: is a democratic sheepdog cock and um, there's no uh, <laughs>
0: and Philip uh, uh, and, uh, and Philip he's also the best thing to happen to the american left uh god i don't know, I don't know since when what's Tip the second no, best oh, thing uh, second best thing, uh, you know, because uh, many. Pamela fans.
1: Anderson, probably.
0: Yeah, Pam- Pamela. <laughs> <Anderson>. <laughs> no, Pamela is
3: uh,
0: Yeah, Anton. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something else, which actually came up during your your article you wrote with uh, Ronan, dealing with that wonderful uh, and insightful uh, Guardian populism series about uh, the legacy of Hofstadter on, on in the liberal imagination and sort of a, a responses to uh right-wing politics uh can you can you expand on that for us
1: yeah i just think that um the pedigree of what we know as liberal anti-populism today is actually very very old and was first coined in the cold war basically So the role populism plays in American historiography in the 40s and 50s is really as this kind of connecting element between the two extremes that liberalism fears, which is fascism and Stalinism. And obviously liberals think that fascism is bad, they also think that Stalinism is bad. How do you find a sort of uh, common denominator between these two forms of bad politics? And obviously uh, it's populism. And it really required a sort of real historical amputation in the American case um, where um, the late 19th century American populist movement, which is also the movement that invented the word populism, uh, actually had to be presented as the precursor to American fascism and McCarthyism, which is a real, which turned out to be a real scholarly hatchet job, but which did a very, very useful, uh, played a really useful political role for liberals in the 50s and 60s, um, because I mean, to present certainly populism in the South or the original American populism in the late 19th century as a quintessential form of racism completely forgets that actually the whole Jim Crow order was constructed precisely because it was meant to preclude anything resembling like the biracial populist coalition you had in the 1890s, which was also the movement uh, out of which basically Eugene V. Debs, the biggest American socialist ever, uh, grew. And I think this is really the big bang of liberal anti-populism, which is of of course Hofstadter but it also includes people such as Arthur Schlesinger and people such as Edward Schills. and you just see the transplantation of this american liberal anti-populist vocabulary which is mainly prominent in the 50s and 60s into a global framework in the 60s and 70s in modernization theory and then in the 18 uh, sorry in the 1980s and the 1990s you first see it popping up in europe and there's actually a direct line with someone like Kasmuddu who writes his first work in the late 1990s and who's obsessed with this idea that populism is about identity, it's about status anxiety, there's a sort of refusal to think about the fact that populism might have real roots in a sort of mass dispossession of decision-making that's actually going on in Europe. But this is, again, uh, just a symptom of the fact that Moody is operating with this Cold War vocabulary, because there's, it's purely a surface reading of populism. It's a question of, oh, we don't have to actually look at the roots and causes. We can just stigmatize these people as sort of pathological, paranoid lunatics. And once these people have been pushed out of the political arena, we can get on with our uh, liberal pastimes, basically.